scripture reading this morning is the King James Version of Psalm 118, verse 24. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. man was drinking coffee, reading the newspaper at the breakfast table one morning, paying no attention to his wife. I understand some men do that. No one in this audience certainly would, but some do. She leaned over and pulled his newspaper down so that they could make eye contact, looked into his face and said, I bet you don't even remember what today is. As you can imagine, panic flew all over this guy, and he thought for a moment, and he quickly tried to cover himself, and he said, of course I do. Do you think that I could ever forget? Some of you guys need to be taking notes. That day at noon, his wife received a dozen red roses. Later in the day, there was a box of chocolates that arrived at the door, followed still later by a beautiful dress that she had had her eye on. And when the husband came home that evening, there was soft candlelight glowing throughout the house. The table was beautifully set with a cloth, a a linen tablecloth and fresh cut flowers. Soft music was playing. His wife was dressed to the nines. They had a romantic meal unlike anything that they had had in quite some time. Afterwards, she came over, gave her husband a wonderful kiss and said, Sweetheart, I want you to know that this is the best Groundhog Day I've ever had. Some of us are better than others at remembering special days. But David, in the psalm that Izzy just read, says that there is one day that every one of us ought to remember. It ought to be a very special day. And he said that day is today. I want you to know this morning that it's possible to live 365 days a year without having a bad day. If you can just learn to do what David said in this text, if you can stand in the light of God's presence and in the light of his guidance, I'll remind you one of David's own Psalms in Psalm 119, 105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. If you and I are willing to live in the will of God, if we're willing to exist each day in the light of God's guidance and his presence, we can make every day a great day. That's what the psalmist said, and so I'm going to take his word for it. And I'm going to be talking about this morning, we want to look at a couple of ways that we can apply that principle to our lives this morning. And because of the limitation of time, we're going to save two for tonight. And so I hope that you'll be able to be back tonight at five. But the Bible says this is the day that the Lord has made. And then he follows that by commitment of heart and life. We will rejoice and be glad in it. There are several biblical principles about this day every day that I think could help each one of us make each one of those days special because we can make every God-given day a God-governed day, then each day will be a God-gladdened day. You might want to hang on to that because we're going to repeat that in just a moment. But this wonderful verse also has a practical application in our lives. I understand that there is a prophetic message because I've read the context. I know verse 24 contains a prophetic application because it's a passage that's looking forward to the glorious day when Jesus Christ will come and bring salvation. So that's the context of verse 24. 
But again, there is a practical application of the passage that I want us to consider this morning and tonight. So let me show you how to make every day a great day as you enjoy God's light. Number one, the, the psalmist says that today is a provided day. This is the day that the Lord has made is his affirmation. Would it surprise you to learn that the word made in this text is the same one that is used over and over again in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 talking about God's creative effort? When God made this universe, he also, David said, in a similar way, made this day for us to enjoy. God created this universe with meticulous attention to detail, and the Bible says that he's using the same care in fashioning and shaping each day for his people. One of God's creations and one of his gifts to us is the gift of time. Now, I know I'm not the first one to have introduced that idea to you. We all understand, if we have any sense about us at all, that time really is a gift that God blesses us with. And every day, there's time to work. There's time for us to serve in the kingdom of God. There's time to love. There's time to laugh. And if there isn't, then you need to loosen up that schedule. You need to start making time for those things. But like any gift, the value that we receive from time that is allotted to us is, is totally up to us. Each one must use our own discretion about how we're going to use the increments of time that God has blessed us with each day. So day, today is a gift from God. It's what the psalmist wants us to know. And, and because it's God's gift, that means that we are, we're stewards of it. Like everything else that God has blessed us with, even our financial uh, assets. God has blessed us with those things and we are stewards and he commands that we be faithful in our stewardship of our financial blessings but also of our time. The Bible teaches that when we stand before Jesus Christ in judgment that we're going to give an account of every day that we've lived, of how we've used our time, whether we've used it wisely or whether we have used it unwisely. So there are 24 hours in a day that's 1,440 minutes or 86,400 seconds in every day. And all people, both kings and commoners, have the same amount of time in each day. The only difference is how people choose to use that time. And that's one of the things that I want us to think about together this morning, how we're using each day. Is it a great day or is it an average day or is it a mediocre day because of how we're using our time? I read about a man that and I read this online, so it's got to be true. I read about a man who, who had a $7 million watch crafted for him by Swiss watchmakers. $7 million. It's hard enough for me to imagine someone wearing a $7,000 watch, but a seven million, and I can't imagine how much gold and silver and precious stones and intricate workmanship has to go into a watch to make it worth seven million dollars. I do know this, when I read the story, I had to laugh because I thought the guy who wears a seven million dollar watch has no more time, no less time than the fellow who has a twelve dollar watch from Walmart. We all have the same amount of time to use every day. So time is one of the very few areas of life where every one of us is on equal footing, the great and the small alike. And the Lord has made and given you this day for your use, for your blessing, and for his glory. How would we spend, and here's a question I, 
I, I don't want you just to, to think about and then move on. I, I want you really to ponder on this, especially sometime when you've got more time to think about it. How would you spend this day, April 14th, how would you spend this day if you knew with absolute certainty the Lord was coming back tomorrow? Would you change your plans? Would you do something different? Whatever your answer to that question is, as theoretical as the question might be, if you knew the Lord was coming back, how would you spend a day? The response would be, get at it. That's how you ought to use this day. You ought to live every day as if you were expecting the Lord to come back or maybe to call you home. But whichever way, we need to to live our lives as if this is the last day of our lives. But the Bible also says in our text that this is not only a provided day that the Lord has made, but it's also a present day. Here's what I mean by this. If you examine very carefully or even not so carefully the the, the grammar of this text, you'll see that the word is in this text. This is the day that the Lord has made is in the present tense. And, And so that means that the psalmist isn't looking back to the past. He isn't looking ahead to the future. His focus is on the present day that lies before us right now. And so that's what he's asking us to do. He says, I want you to focus. Don't think about the past. Don't think about the future. I want you to lock in on today for just a moment. And if God thinks that today is special enough to merit his creative attention, then he must have something special in it for every one of us. But keeping our focus on the presentness of today is a challenge. What I'm asking is not easy. What the psalmist is asking of us, is requiring of us, is not easy. Because there are two other days that can steal the strength from today. And I believe that David was very much aware of that when he wrote this passage. If not, we need to be aware of that reality. Today is often crucified, as someone has aptly said, between the two thieves known as yesterday and tomorrow. Yesterday can be the enemy of today if we insist on living in the past. But why would anybody ever dwell on on yesterday? Why would anyone ever want to to live in the past? Well, there are several, several answers to that question. One reason is, is past guilt. I know I've talked about that from this pulpit before, but I just want to mention it because it is a factor. There are some people who are living in the past because they just can't get over some mistake or mistakes that they have made. They're haunted by the ghost of guilt for things that have happened. It's kind of like a few weeks ago I told you about the man who told his preacher that he had done some terrible thing and and he could find no rest in his conscience. It was continuing to plague him. And and the preacher asked him, well, have you confessed it to the Lord? And the man said, oh, preacher, I've, I've confessed it a thousand times. And the preacher wisely said, well, that's your problem. You should have confessed it just once. And then thank God a thousand times for his forgiveness. And that's right, isn't it? And so we, we can live in yesterday if we cannot get over guilt and the sin that brought that guilt that has already been dealt with, rectified, and repented of, and forgiven by a gracious God. But there's another reason some people live in the past. is because they're trying to recapture past glory. Uh, you, you're not like that. But you may know someone who's like that. They're living in the past. Springsteen even had a song about glory days. And, and most of us can relate to that. There are a lot of professional athletes that struggle with getting their, keeping their lives together after they have retired from whatever sport that they've been playing with because they, they have a hard time facing the fact that they're no longer in the spotlight. One former Major League Baseball pitcher, pitcher who happens to be a friend of mine said, all that time you think that you are gripping that baseball and then you find out that it's been gripping you 
So some people want to live in the past because they want to recapture past glory. But athletes aren't the only ones that long for the glory of the past. I'm afraid you can go to many churches today where not much is happening for the kingdom of God. And you know the kind of congregation, the church I'm talking about. They just come in, they turn on the lights, they go through the motions, they sweep up and they go home. Nothing, nothing is really moving. No souls are being won to the Lord. They're just coming in and keeping house for the Lord. But if you were to ask a church member about that, that particular congregation, he might say something along the lines of, well, you should have been here 30 years ago when so-and-so was here. This place was hopping then. You see, they're living in the past. They're not looking at and evaluating the spiritual health of the congregation by what's being done today. They're just looking at past glory, living and resting on past laurels. I think it's safe to say that the Apostle Paul was the greatest missionary and the greatest apostle and probably the greatest church builder who ever lived. But Paul said, if I can give you a piece of unsolicited but inspired advice, it would be this. You need to take a page out of my own playbook because Paul refused to live in the past. You know that, I know that. But let's remind ourselves of the content of Philippians 3, 13 and 14 quickly. Paul said this, I count not myself to have apprehended. That is, I have not arrived spiritually and I am not yet what God wants me to be. I have not fully matured. He goes on to say, but this one thing I do. Forgetting those things that are behind, reaching forth into those things that are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. If Paul had not written any other spiritual counsel than just those two verses, I think his life would have been well spent because he's exactly right. We cannot live in the past. Many of the things that we've done may be great, they may be wonderful, but I remind you, those are yesterday's, those are yesterday's victories. I can well remember, even though it was... 70 or 80 years ago when my high school football coach would say, boys, put away those press clippings. The other team hasn't read them. It doesn't matter to them. They don't care what you did in the last game or last year. What we're interested in, and the psalmist certainly agrees, is what you're doing today. A third thing that keeps people from living in the present and keeps them bound to the past is, is past grief. Have you ever known problems or sorrow in your life? Are there heartaches that you've endured? I think I know the answer to that question that because we're like everybody else. Everybody has suffered. Everybody's had problems. They're dealing with difficulties. Jesus acknowledged that reality in John 16, And so these things are absolutely real. And it would be foolish to try to deny the problem areas in the lives of every one of us. But you don't need to deny their reality to make up your mind that you're going to stop licking your wounds and you're going to stop feeling sorry for yourself. Past grief will not, will not heal your heart. It will only tie you to yesterday so that you cannot effectively deal with the challenges of today. I believe that's one of the reasons why Psalm 11824 is in our Bible. Here's another thing. Past grudges are yet another reason why some people cannot enjoy the today that God has given to every one of us. Have you been mistreated? I've never met anyone who hasn't been wronged. And I emphasize who has not been wronged somewhere along the way. Everybody knows what it's like to suffer some injustice. Don't drag a heavy load of resentment from yesterday into today. Because resentment and grudges only weigh down the person who's trying to carry those. There's no quicker way to poison today than to infect it with bitter poison 
from a yesterday's hurt. I think that's a part of what the psalmist wants us to know. Also, tomorrow, not just yesterday, but tomorrow can be a thief of today. Other people fail to enjoy today because they're living in anticipation or maybe in dread of tomorrow. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. I read about a psychologist who asked 3,000 people this question, what do you have to look forward to in your life? And he was kind of surprised to learn that 94% of the people who responded said that they were enduring today while anticipating tomorrow. Just doing what we can to survive today, looking forward to tomorrow. Kind of reminds me of a statement that I heard one time that says, even the worst of golfers think that things will get better on the back nine. You know, I mean, we're just putting up with the circumstances now, anticipating that it will be better tomorrow. The sad thing is that while people like that are waiting for tomorrow, they're missing out on today. If we're living in anticipation or dread of tomorrow, we're missing out on the great day that God has made for each one of us. There's nothing wrong with having hope and making plans and having optimism for the future. In fact, there's a lot to commend those things. But if your hopes for what, what happens tomorrow make today seem like drudgery, then you're never going to fully understand what it means to rejoice and be glad in today. You cannot do that while focused on yesterday or today. The real problem is that many people's hope for tomorrow is based on not on God's promises and God's presence in their lives, but on wishful thinking, on foolish dreams. Allow me to illustrate. Millions of people in this country play the lottery, thinking that if they play today, then they will get lucky and win it big tomorrow. In fact, almost all of our state governments sponsor and, and vigorously promote that cruel game of what I call no chance. It's not a game of chance, folks. It's really a game of no chance that separates the weak and the greedy from money that they cannot afford to lose. And yet people are doing that in anticipation that maybe tomorrow I'll hit it big and things will get better. And, and the message with, with all the commercials that I see about lotteries and, and, and gambling and such is obvious. Don't forget to buy that lottery ticket or you might miss out on tomorrow. Listen, if you've got some money that you want to throw away, I can tell you where you can invest that in kingdom matters that will last eternity. Do not throw your money away. But you see why people are motivated to do that, anticipating that tomorrow will be better. Some people are waiting for tomorrow in, in, in anticipation, but there are others who are worrying about tomorrow with abject dread. And that's a terrible way to live. I don't think you have to be a professional clinical psychologist to agree with that statement. Our Lord warned against that. You remember in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, 34 is where he said, Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Live your life in daytight compartments is the Lord's counsel. And he was talking to his disciples then, but I think he's probably even more pointedly talking to his disciples in, in, in 2019 because we need to hear that message probably more than the first century disciples did. He said, live your life. Don't worry about tomorrow. Live your life today. Today has enough things to deal with and enough challenges to address without having to borrow from tomorrow. And the context of that famous verse is worry over whether 
Anyone, someone will have enough to eat or drink or enough clothes to wear. If you back up and look at verses 25 through 33, you will see the context then of why he said what he said in verse 34. Jesus is telling us not to worry about tomorrow because fundamentally and essentially, and, and this ought to be good enough for every one of us, God knows our needs and he will provide. Jesus says that's the bottom line. And if you trust that God will take care of you, then you're not going to spend today worrying about things. But there's another good reason for not worrying about tomorrow. God has, and and I kind of had to labor a little bit to get the right word here. I hope I've chosen the right one. He has a very delicate ecology for the soul. There's a balance that God is trying to accomplish in our lives. He allows enough difficulty in every day. So that we will come to him and lean on him and learn dependence on him. And then he gives us enough strength and equips us to be able to meet that difficulty. I believe that with all my heart. Now, please don't miss that. God allows the difficulty so that we might see our need of him. But he gives the strength so that we then can turn and know that we have been blessed by him. That is an ecology of the soul. However, God only gives today's strength for today's needs. Or as Deuteronomy thirty-three twenty-five says, as your days, so shall your strength be. God says, I'm going to measure out the strength that you need for today on a daily basis. Also, let's end with this thought. Worrying about yesterday or today is a terrible waste of time. Think about it this way. Worry does not take the sorrow out of tomorrow. It only takes the strength out of today. And that's because today is the only day that we have in which to worry. I believe that was a part of what the psalmist was communicating to us. A man was trying to encourage his friend not to be such a worry wart, so he said to him, you know, worry is just a waste of time. After all, 90% of the things that people worry about never happen. And the worrier said, aha, that proves that worry works. No, he had missed the point. As Christians, watch this carefully, church. As Christians, we are commanded in Scripture not to worry. It is not a request. It's a requirement. Lord said, I do not want you worried. And God meets us today with today's grace and with today's strength. And worry not only does not make us ready for tomorrow. In fact, it makes us unready, if there is such a word. It makes us unready for today. It will leach the strength from us because we're living in the past or living in the future. And we'll face the future out of breath because we've been fighting tomorrow's battles today with the strength of today for tomorrow's battles. I hope that makes some sense. You need to think about that one. But worry also pulls tomorrow's clouds over today's sunshine. I heard about a man who was constantly failing at everything he put his hand to. He was a salesman. Problem was he, he could hardly sell anything. And it reflected not only in his own life and demeanor, but in in the life of his family. Before all of this happened to him, this guy was driving a you know just an old clunker car, and and his wife wore a perpetual haggard, worried look. His kids were making poor grades at school; they lived on the wrong side of the tracks. But then all of a sudden, something happened to that guy, and and, and he began to smile and stand up straight, and he began to have a positive attitude about life. 
And people saw the transformation in this guy and wondered what would happen. So before long, he was driving a shiny new car, and his wife had fixed herself up and looked attractive. His kids were making good grades down at school. He had moved his family into a new home in an upscale neighborhood. And so understandably, one of his closest friends came to him and said, What happened to you? I've never seen such a transformation in my life. And the man replied, You know how I used to worry about everything. I was so worried that I couldn't do my job. And I don't worry anymore. And his friend said, well, how did you do that? And he said, I found a firm of professional worriers. I just go down at the beginning of each day, I tell them my problems, and they do all my worrying for me, which uh, allows me to go out and work. I am now freed up to be a really good salesman. And his, and his friend said, does it work? And, and the man answered, of course it works. Look at me. I mean, look at the change it's made in me. And the friend wanted to know, But how much would something like that cost? I might want to try that. And the answer came back, it cost $1,000 a week. And the man, was his friend was taken aback. And he said, mercy. He said, how in the world are you going to pay that? And the man's response was, that's their worry. (laughs) How would you like to have someone... Do your worrying for you. I'm here to announce to you this morning as emphatically as I know how that there is someone that is willing to do that. And not for $1,000 a week. He's willing to offer that kind of life to you for free. And his name is Jesus. Here's what he said. Come unto me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. And Peter, one of the ones who accepted that invitation for himself, tells us to cast all our cares upon Jesus, for he cares for us, 1 Peter 5 or 7 says. And that's because yesterday is a canceled check, tomorrow is a promissory note. Today, folks, is all the cash that we have, and we need to learn to spend it well. Someone has said it this way, yesterday is history, tomorrow is mystery, Today is a gift from God, and that's why they call it the present. I believe that's right. In 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 2, Paul has been writing, of course, his second letter to the Corinthian Christians. In chapter 5, verse 10, he's reminded those Christians of the fact that every one of us is going to someday stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And then he goes on to say what we'll be doing there, for we will receive the things which we've done in our bodies, whether it be good or bad. That is, judgment day is coming for everybody, whether they want to acknowledge that or deny it. And then in chapter 2, just a few chapters or a few verses later, right in the next chapter, chapter 6, verse 2 of 2 Corinthians is where he says, Today is the day of salvation. Today is the accepted time. That is, there is no better time than right now to get your life right with God. And so when we sing this song of encouragement in just a moment, I want you to know that if you're not right with God in any way, if there's anything awry, something standing between you and God, we hope you'll correct it. If you can do that in the pew just between you and God, we hope that you will correct it in the pew. But if you need to come as a a fellow Christian and ask for the prayers of this good church for your strength and for your forgiveness, we'd be delighted to do that. Or if you need to render initial obedience to the Lord through faith, repentance, confession, and baptism, we'll be delighted. I I guarantee you. Some folks here have lunch plans, but they'd be willing to put those off to see you baptized into Christ.
today. Can I get an amen? I mean, we would love to see you walk down this aisle in just a moment and say, I want to commit my life to Christ. I want to live the way he would have me to live from this day forward. If that's what you need to do, won't you come while we stand and while we sing?